Hello and welcome to another episode of A Slice of Health, the Candid Health Chat podcast, where we slice away health truth from health fiction. Join me and my friends as we challenge common health myths via chit chat, powered by several cups of coffee. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and do visit us at a sliceofhealth.club. Let's get to today's episode. Listeners, today we have a special guest on the podcast. We have Dr. Safia Mohammed, who is a GP registrar in Windsor, who is also currently planning her summer wedding. Uh, her special interests include lifestyle medicine, aesthetic work, and when she's not doing clinical practice, she enjoys football, boxing, and calligraphy. Welcome, Dr. Mohammed. Hi, thank you. So thank you so much for coming on today. And um, just before we go ahead to talk about the things that we really want to talk about today, the main topic is STIs and are STIs curable? I also wanted to ask, how are you coping with COVID and have you been able to engage in your normal sporting activities with the scare of COVID recently? Yeah, good good question. Um, So I've actually not gone to the gym this week. Okay. Um, but uh, generally, sort of seeing a lot of things on social media, kind of work about spreading gyms mm-hmm. um, and local facilities as well. I personally, you know, as we all are kind of hearing that it's mostly the older generation or people with background problems that are kind of struggling the most. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping I don't let it limit my activities so much. Yeah. So that's, that's what I stand at the moment. I don't think people should avoid it. But of course, if you have symptoms, kind of worrying symptoms that require you to isolate and the protection of others and to avoid spread, you should be avoiding public places like where gyms, for example, where things can be spread. Where things can be spread. And today is the 13th, um, just to our listeners, so today's the 13th of March um, that we're recording this episode. So by the time you guys listen to this, things might have changed quite significantly in the UK because obviously we're taking everything on a day-by-day basis. And yesterday, the prime minister talked about the next steps, you know, steps of action after that, you know, Cobra meeting that they all went in for after Northern Ireland, um, the Republic of Ireland declared that they were going to start quarantine, stopping schools and things. What do you think about this? Do you think that we are going to go in that direction as well? It's just difficult to say, isn't it? Because we see Italy's gone into complete lockdown. Yeah. Um, Other places have done the same. And then our advice has basically been to wash our hands mm-hmm. and stay home for seven days. Um, so I, I think, I, I personally think there's too much of a financial impact in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the NHS has so far managed uh, well, but to say, you know, to see what happens in the next week, even with numbers rising, yes, there's a possibility we could go down that road, but for the time being, you know, fingers crossed that we don't need to. Um, kind of stopping or closing schools has also been on the table, I yeah. think, till, till after Easter, with children being carriers who may not even have any symptoms. Exactly. Also, also makes sense, but, but the, the long-term sort of, you know, looking forward three months, does that mean, you know, what does that mean for the impact yeah. on everybody? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It is quite scary, you know, because obviously with Easter coming up, a lot of people have plans, holidays. A lot of people would have booked holidays to go visit Italy over the Easter period. You know, people wanting to go to Rome, see the Pope, the Vatican, and even trips within the UK as well. So I think it is it is a scary time, and obviously quite a lot of people are quite afraid. And I think as well with the fear of it and what has happened in Italy, there's been a lot of scaremongering. 
stockpiling lots of things are unavailable one of the surgeries in the building that i work um ran out of face masks last week and that was you know that was doctors not able to get face masks so it's been quite difficult for both the general public and the and the health service as well have you heard any myths or anything that people have held on to Plenty of myths I've been hearing. Um, just to go back to what you were saying about face masks, mm. though. So I was just reading, you know, it's quite... Because that question has come up so many times mm-hmm. now. Should I wear a face mask? Mm-hmm. And, and then pulled out kind of worldwide, I think. Yeah. The face mask company is making a nice big amount yeah. of money. And hand sanitizer companies as well, definitely. Yeah. But essentially, I mean, the, the masks need to be medical equipment masks with a proper seal Mm -hmm. in order order for them to be sort of effective against virus or coronaviruses. Um, But if you do have symptoms, in that case, sort of using them wisely, they're one-time use masks and using them to avoid spread to other people, but won't really protect you essentially from the evidence we have. Yeah, exactly. And definitely, and so if you do have symptoms, the evidence, you know, and the advice now is that you really ought to self-isolate and self-quarantine if you know you're able to stay at home but if you're not then you do need to be admitted and you will need to be admitted to sort of an ICU level facility because it does cause quite significant bilateral interstitial pneumonia what other things can we do other than self-isolating so I think kind of proper hygiene so obviously we've all been hearing the 20 second hand wash um coughing and sort of sneezing into the the crease of your elbow sure that you know if you're in a house and you have symptoms to use your own towels your own kind of clean your own spaces dispose of tissues Mm. um, don't wear towels which goes without saying um, but just the kind of normal hygiene measures to avoid spread avoid spreading the virus Mm because as far as we know it can live on surfaces for hours maybe even days yeah and important to be cleaning down um going back to the myths as well yeah um it's, uh, I was telling you that I've heard lavender oil, um, that was one of the interesting ones I've heard mm. this week. come in kind of covered in lavender oil. I've been hearing lots of different things, so vitamin E, taking oil supplements, any others that you've got? Yeah, so I got one the other day um, with, you know, these WhatsApp uh, bulk messages that people send across and I got one that said a hot lemon juice with some lemongrass is the cure for coronavirus and it might definitely make you feel better whether it's a cure that is highly unlikely and yet to be proven as well so you know drinking a nice cup of hot tea with some lemon and lemongrass in it that's very pleasant it's soothing is it going to cure coronavirus? That's that's highly unlikely. Uh, I also heard one where someone was saying, oh, if you're able to hold your breath for 15 seconds, then you definitely don't have coronavirus. And obviously that, you know, that is not something that is backed by evidence either because some people do have mild illness and if they do have mild illness, they will be able to hold their breath for 15 seconds and even longer. And, you know, they might not even have a cough, they might not have significant fever, but they'd have a few symptoms of respiratory illness that others might not feel related to COVID. So holding your breath for 15 seconds is not going to... It's not an accurate test. No, it's not, it's not an accurate test. And not being able to hold your breath as well is not pathognomonic of, of COVID as well. Absolutely. I think with, with a lot of these herbal remedies, um, I always tell patients that you know, 
they may they may very well have benefits, but not on a large scale enough that's evidence based for exactly. us to say yes, this will work. So this I think if it's doing no harm, absolutely go ahead. Yeah. But not with me thinking that it's going to cure it. But it's going to cure it, exactly, exactly. And um, just so that we discuss a few more of the symptoms of COVID before we then go ahead into our topic, what are the main symptoms that people ought to be looking out for? So as it stands, um, like a normal um, illness, common cold, you can get sore throat, sort of it proceeds with sore throat, maybe runny nose, um, and a persistent sort of cough with fever. Um, and, and as it stands, you know, then that can progress into kind of developing difficulty with your breathing, um, a, a very aggressive cough, um, and feeling very tired. So those are the kind of things that we look for at the moment and those are the people that we're encouraging to stay at home self-isolate for seven days and, and just sort of minimize spread at this stage yeah okay so those are the really important things about about covid19 and the important things as well is that the hygiene steps that we've been recommending people should continue these hygiene steps going forward you know washing your hands in soap and water frequently sneezing into the crease of your clothing um in your elbow as opposed to sneezing out indiscriminately you know catch it bin it kill it those kind of things are important going forward for all sorts of respiratory illness to reduce the risk of spread as well. So today's main topic is STIs and we're talking about STIs. Can STIs be cured? What do you say to that? So I think if we are proactive in our approach and, and when seeing, I think, a big population of our patients that kind of come to us with these kind of symptoms are generally younger um, and it's always encouraged that you get tested at mm-hmm. your sexual health clinic. Yes. Because, yes, most STIs are treatable in the sort of early stages and yeah. you, know, you shouldn't get too many complications. Mm-hmm. That being said, a lot of people, you know, due to whether it's embarrassment or not feeling the need to, maybe not even displaying symptoms, may not get tested regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can then, yes, lead to uh, complications later. Grouping all STIs, of course, they're all different. Yeah. The general ones that I think, you know, we see in primary care would be chlamydia, um, gonorrhea, uh, herpes as well, syphilis, I think out of all of them would be the one with the worst sort of outcomes. Yeah. But yeah, definitely I think getting the, the early treatment is of utmost importance when it comes to STIs. Mm-hmm. Um, we can go into a little bit more detail about complications. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So when we talk about STIs, we're talking about sexually transmitted infections. And these infections can occur anywhere in the body. So the vagina, the anus, the penis, the throat, the mouth. Um, and obviously most common, the most common one currently in sort of the UK society is chlamydia. So should we start there in terms of talking about the kinds of symptoms that people get with chlamydia and how we're able to treat it as well? So what do you find is a quite common symptom of chlamydia? I think generally girls, or when, when women present, um, they'll usually have some element of pain when urinating. Mm-hmm. Um, this is frequently what I've seen. Uh, maybe some abnormal discharge, also bleeding um, after intercourse can yeah. be one of the symptoms, um, and pain during sex as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, yeah. And have you noticed ever noticing people who have had asymptomatic chlamydia yeah um quite a few actually mm-hmm. uh, most most people i think is is that um, you know they will, they'll come in with nothing um and a lot of times it's just tested on their routine 
um, testing and they'll find out that they do and have they, they do have chlamydia as well okay and in terms of treatment what what are we going for in terms of treatment now for chlamydia so generally we're going for antibiotics yeah um, that's usually a tablet form um, and you're usually treated for seven days yeah um, and, and then so you can have a follow-up check sort of to make sure that things have resolved after that yeah definitely during that time to be using protection or not to be sexually active if you are tested positive yeah using protection and the use of barrier con- um, protection is actually quite important because a lot of people find that they use contraception. So, you know, the, either the pill, the implant, um, or an IUD or an IUS or a depot, but are not using barrier methods for protection. And that is quite important when talking about sexually transmitted infections as well. How do you find in terms of at taking a history? Do you feel that people are normally quite open when talking about their sexual history? Or is there still a stigma in terms of being open about partners, the sex of the partners, genders of the partners, and the frequency of partner change? Generally, I, I feel that the older generation, so, so maybe our generation mm. and beyond are a little bit more uncomfortable mm-hmm. discussing um, their sex life and disclosing um, their kind of sexual preferences as well. Whereas I find the younger generation tends to be more open and giving That's with what great. they are with to tell us. And, and I think people generally like to play down symptoms as well with fear and judgment maybe. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I think because we talk a lot more openly about sex now, um on social media in the press in television people feel more open to be able to talk about these things and when it comes to such infections the openness is quite important to be able to actually say well this is where i'm at so that we're able to then make an accurate assessment of the risks treat appropriately and then make a plan for the future as well in terms of how frequently a person should get tested depending on their sexual preferences and sexual lifestyle as well because chlamydia is not without its own complications in the future long term if left untreated could we talk a bit more about those those complications yeah so when we're, we're talking about women um the kind of most common i think uh, complication we see is something called pelvic inflammatory disease yes. which is essentially swelling around the pelvic area and mm-hmm. the organs of reproduction um and that can present in many different ways um which is why sort of initial and early treatment is very important with that, that's more so with women, so abnormal discharge, pelvic pain, and a pain during sex as well. Men may have the long-term complications of swelling around the testicles. Um, and going back to women, um, infertility can be one of the, the big complications. Um, and then there's other minor ones which can affect the joints as well. Um, but generally, that's the biggest thing that we see in pelvic inflammatory disease is also, again, treated with antibiotics as well that's great and what other um sexually transmitted infections do we find commonly so you did mention um gonorrhea and you also mentioned syphilis uh but just before we get to syphilis because that that is getting a bit more complicated now sort of over the past decade let's talk a bit more about gonorrhea before we get into the more complicated issues of syphilis yeah um so again um gonorrhea can a lot of times be asymptomatic um, may present with sort of greenish discharge um, in women um, and in men again very vague but usually an asymptomatic can cause pain on urination mm-hmm. um, and, and again there's similar sort of protocols so where you look to treat that with antibiotics mm-hmm. 
complications wise, women, again, mostly pelvic inflammatory disease can also lead to pregnancies in the wrong place when you are looking to become pregnant, so ectopic pregnancies, um, and then long-term pelvic pain with the uh, pelvic inflammation. As well, yeah. And we mentioned herpes earlier, and herpes yeah. seems to be one that is um, that sort of rears its head at the most inconvenient times as well. Can you tell us a bit about that, especially for people who feel they've had treatment for herpes or have never had herpes before and suddenly notice crops of blisters around the genital areas? Absolutely, and I see this one actually quite frequently. Mm -hmm. um, so herpes, unfortunately, is a virus that stays in the body, so mm -hmm. it lies sort of dormant, and then you continue to have flare-ups. For some people, that may be more frequent than others, um, but little things such as stress or illness can trigger off um, herpes, um, and then that causes usually small blisters around the genital areas or open sores around the thighs, uh, buttocks or your anus as well, mm -hmm. um, and, and can cause a tingling or burning sensation. So a lot of people know before they're about to get a flare-up with their herpes because mm -hmm. they start to get a tingling, and at that point they say, can you give me this to treat it, the antiviral yeah. treatment to kind of get rid of it before it starts. Um, and, and, and with herpes, again, you know, important not to kind of be active when you have active lesions, yes. no, no sexual intercourse. Um, and to take precautions with barrier methods that we were talking about before. That's great. And in terms of, um, you know, people then experiencing herpes, so let's say they have had a new sexual partner and feel that it's that partner that's given it to them, even though that partner does not have any active lesions, how would you go about describing it to them that actually you might have had this for quite a while, or caught it from a different partner and it's only now presenting itself yeah so i think a lot of the times we say to people if you know you've had a new sexual partner within the last six months really important to get tested yeah. even though you may have any symptoms of anything um and and that's actually a difficult one because with people who and nowadays we do regularly sort of change sexual partners so difficult to sort of keep track um there's no one way of telling really if you know who's given you herpes uh, yes. because that was another question that I've gotten frequently but it's important that both partners get tested and are sort of open with each other and have that conversation should one of them test positive. Mm -hmm. Actually recently I had a phone call from uh, just after Christmas time a phone call from somebody who had been unfaithful mm -hmm. and developed uh, chlamydia and then did not want you know their, their partner to know about it and, and had symptoms as well and so it was requesting some treatment over the phone and we encourage people to be open and we sort of have an element of trust in our patients to, to yes. be open and tell their partners um, and I think that one's a, a bit of a tricky one because you you know you don't want to be the reason for a breakdown of relationships yeah yeah it's important that people are aware that you know you're not just harming yourself and you are in, in essence spreading it to a wider number of people yes yes not being cautious yeah definitely and i think that's where the um sexual health clinics are um quite well enabled to deal with sexually transmitted infections because they have the ability to do contact tracing quite well um and also do it in as anonymous a way as possible now obviously if you are calling a husband let's say um who has been faithful to his partner 
for the past 20 years and then say, you know, we have some suspicion that you might have been in contact with someone who has chlamydia. There's no way that that gentleman isn't going to know that it's most likely his partner who has been unfaithful. But it is really important to be able to actually address these issues because they do then cause systemic problems um, if left untreated in in a lot of people. And what about herpes? What are the features of of genital um, gentle warts? Sorry, not herpes, genital warts clinically. So warts. Um, so again, a lot of people won't have any symptoms. Um, warts is caused by something called the human papillomavirus, um, which we are nowadays vaccinating young girls um, against. Um, so different types of strains of the virus, but yeah. the ones that cause the warts are sort of contagious with central contact. Yes. Um, I've had some people even ask, you know, does it require you to actually have penetrative sexual intercourse mm. and the answer is no mm. because it can be spread through just touching um touching of genitals so yes. that and um, that's quite common as well and the worry with um even papilloma is the long-term sort of effect yes. so and affect your throat as well through oral sex um and then you know, we keep an eye there is treatments for the warts but again a lot of times these things are ignored and can be easily treated in your local sexual health clinics. I think it's really important we encourage everybody to do that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that is something that is quite critical in terms of the spread of sexually transmitted infections because as our world continues to change, it's not just penetrative sex that actually increases the risk of um, contact with um sexually transmitted infections you know you can get it in your eye if any bodily fluid splashes in your eye if semen splashes in the eye um if there has been sharing of sex toys it can it can be transmitted that way as well all kinds of touching activity can also lead to that and so it's really important to encourage people to engage in safe sexual practices where you know they and their partner are open and honest about where they are at in terms of in terms of their sexual health as well are they teaching this in schools you know because I know we never got taught sexual health. I remember a lady coming with a banana. I remember a lady coming with a banana and a condom and, you know, just putting it on. Um, And I think I remember them showing us pictures of herpes. And I was absolutely frightened when I saw the pictures of herpes. I was like, no, I don't want that. Um, But other than that, I don't actually think that we had proper open conversations about it and actually at the time we were getting that I think quite a few people had already been sexually active by that point already I think it was probably a bit too little too late by that point um because when we when we were getting that yeah we we were sort of I think 14 15 16 so it was it was a bit it was a bit too too late but I don't know how how in-depth the conversations are about how STIs are contracted and also depending on the schools you go to as well I think some parents don't want their children being taught about sex in school so that also brings in some some difficulties as well in terms of talking about it how how open do you think schools should be about sex education I think I mean you know considering we are already open about teaching children methods of safe sex mm. I don't think it would be far-fetched to then touch on you know discussing what to do or at least telling people where to go if yes. you do think you might have a sexual infection yes. this is where you can go it's a private place none of it's disclosed your GP doesn't even need to exactly, know about it you exactly. don't have to disclose 
the information. So you'd rather err on the side of caution, get treatment if you need it. And that goes to say for adults and um, younger children who are sexually active. Yeah, yeah. And you, you mentioned something that is really critical about the... Um sti service is that they don't write back to your gp so it's not like going to a and e with you know a twisted ankle or a broken bone it's completely confidential your case file and your case number there is unique to that clinic and there's no sharing of information that way which is you know which then which makes it a safe and open space to be able to discuss your sexuality and to be able to discuss the problems that you have and the concerns that you have and also maybe to get some education on safe sexual practices how to feel comfortable during the sex act and you know how to know if you're being exploited as well during the sex act as well which is obviously something that is on the rise as well you know sexual exploitation is on the rise in the united kingdom as well um what kind of questions would you expect people to would you tell people to expect to be asked when they go to an sti clinic so a lot of times it's based around their symptoms or, you know, whatever they're coming in for so that it can help whoever's looking at them mm-hmm. kind of rule in and rule out what may be going on. Other than that, they may ask about um, sexual preference and about sexual contacts over the last six months to 12 months to ensure that they can do proper contact tracing yeah. um, and then leave the correct treatment for what you may, might, may or may not have exactly exactly that's great and going into talking about syphilis which um sort of read its head in sort of during the war uh that's world war ii guys not not the um not not the war in the middle east no yeah the old school one um but it's back again and um it's back again with a bit of a vengeance as well so yeah let's talk about that what exactly is syphilis so again, syphilis is a bacterial infection um, and can present in a number of ways. It, is, it does come under one of the sexually transmitted infections, but then the later complications of it may have nothing to do with your genital area. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, essentially it, it won't go away on its own. Mm-hmm. It can cause serious complications. I think that's why it's one of the most important ones to kind of treat. Yes. Um, and, and sort of, you know, using... Um, contraception yeah. um, condom and barrier methods are really important if you are tested positive for syphilis yeah yeah and um in terms of the management of syphilis where are we at now with with managing it so obviously being a bacterial infection it's also one that we can treat with antibiotics as well but there's been quite a bit of resistance regarding management of syphilis now in terms of the antibiotic choices as well do you think that this is something that's going to get better or do you think it's just going to get worse i think that we are becoming a little bit more stringent on our antibiotic use yeah. as it stands now mm. and a lot of this is due to sort of resistant to the classic antibiotics we were using yeah but not usually with a short course of antibiotics it is treated mm-hmm. um but i think you know with us becoming more stringent again with antibiotics hopefully we won't go down the lines of needing to find alternative ways to treat yeah um but um i think yeah it is, yeah. It is. It is. A, it is a bit scary because um, I think the um, routine antibiotics that previously had been used to treat syphilis, we we can't use so much of now. Um, so now they're actually looking towards, you know, mainly using IM 
um, injections and what IM means guys is an intramuscular injection and that is because the course of treatment with oral antibiotics can be quite long in syphilis and so if you attend a clinic and a nurse or a doctor or a healthcare assistant does the injection then we know that the medicine is in your body and you are going to get the treatment what would you say Safia to people who feel that their body is just going to clear their chlamydia their gonorrhea on its own their body is just going to clear their syphilis they don't need to do any Anything about it? What would you say? I want, I want whatever they're eating for breakfast. Then. What you want, whatever they're eating for breakfast? <laughs> um, because that's, that's um, pretty much impossible. So to fight off these infections, you know, if untreated, you are not going to recover from it. So you do need treatment. It's essential. Um, it's unlike a virus where viruses you won't usually need a course of antibiotics. Um, whereas for this bacterial infection, you would definitely need it. Mm-hmm. Very important. You do get it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to run through um, sort of a rapid fire question. So I've got a few myths about STIs. Um, Some of them are true. Some of them are false. So just let us know which ones you think are false and why they're false. So I can't. (laughs) Okay. Ready? Ready. Okay. Uh, Number one, I can't get an STI from oral sex. Incorrect. Okay. Um, I can't get an STI from sharing a sex toy with my partner. Definitely can. Okay. Uh, Number three, getting a test for an STI is embarrassing. It may be, but it shouldn't be. And it's very important to do so. Okay. And also something else about it is if you feel, you know, as a patient or as a service user that you've gotten into an environment and you're talking about, you know, your sexual history, your sexual past and someone and you feel uncomfortable in that environment, it's absolutely fine to say, you know, I'm not comfortable in in this environment. Can I see someone else or can I go to another clinic? And invariably, you will be able to see someone else and you will probably also be signposted to a different clinic. So these places are created to be safe and open space for you to feel comfortable so that you can get the right kind of treatment and so if you feel that your embarrassment is beyond the initial um, discomfort of talking about something that is sensitive if you think that it's beyond that then definitely you know ask to see somebody else or ask to you know is there another STI clinic that I can go to and invariably there is or you can ask to see your GP instead for to have this the screening there as well um, so that's just really important I can't afford STI treatments and tests. So on the NHS, because uh, I think that's all we can kind of speak for. Yeah. Um, I know it's different in other places of the world. But yes, you, it's all free on the NHS. Testing is completely free. And even more kind of invasive blood tests can be done for free to check for more serious sexually transmitted infections, um, more diseases like HIV if there is a concern um, and I know that's being regularly implemented now for homosexual partners to, to make sure they get those tests done every so often yeah um so yes it is free treatment is also free on the NHS um, especially for people who are not um British citizens or um that that kind of treatment is offered to everybody yeah yeah and um okay next question only people who have multiple sexual partners can get an STI nope you can have that one guy or one girl who's been around yeah just one you just need one guys yeah you, you just need one stis don't care about your number yeah the only people that care about your number are other human beings stis don't care 
Um, and only gay men or drug users get HIV. Absolutely not. So anybody can get HIV, including children. Um, it's the method of transmission. It can be through different ways, and, and, and it's a stereotype that I hope we're moving away from. Great. And next question If I use my contraception well, I wouldn't get an STI? Nope. You may, you may not get pregnant. So you may, you may possibly not get pregnant. There's that little chance, <laughs> um, but it, contraception generally does not you know, prevent against STIs, and that's when we're talking about contraceptive tablets. Again, with condoms, is it 99.9% mm-hmm. effective against um, STIs, but there is a small chance still always um, that there's still transmission. So unless you're abstinent and you're not doing anything, there's always a risk of, of getting infections. Okay. And that's great. And and when she says abstinence, guys, she actually means abstinence, which means, which doesn't mean no penetration. It means no nothing at all. No touching, no, no nothing. Um, and a lot of times that is not actually what is going on when people say that they're abstinent, which is really, really important. Um, if I take my partner's STI antibiotics, then I don't need to go for to see a doctor so i don't think you'll have enough if you do that um, unless you've taken their whole course but no you need to get your own testing because you may have you know you may think you have the same infection as your partner and actually you might have something else going on um important that every individual gets their own treatment and own set of medications okay. we don't recommend using somebody else's medicines okay and the second to the last one i've had my pap smear so i don't need to be screened for an sti so pap smears will not always pick up every STI. It looks for the cells of the um, opening of the womb, and, and that doesn't include testing for various other things. So it looks for changes of the cells, which can relate to HPV or the human papilloma virus, um, but doesn't test for everything. So really important, you get your additional testing done for all other infections as well. Okay. And I've not been sexually active, so that means that I got the herpes from a toilet seat. Mm, so herpes, again, there's two forms of herpes. There's the kind above the neck and um, face, and then there's the kind below sort of the belt. Um, and with the one above the neck, you don't have to be sort of sexually active. Um, it can happen from kissing. Um, it can happen also sort of rare, but it has been reported to be transmitted through sharing um, items. Yeah. Um, so if you have an active lesion on your face and you're sharing straws and things like that, there is a risk of transmitting open wounds, mums to children, kissing yeah. their children, um, lots of different ways that you can be passing it on. Same applies to the genital herpes, so usually needs contact. So the question was, I haven't been sexually active. So did I get my herpes from a toilet seat? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, no, you didn't get your herpes from a toilet seat. That is great. Thank you so much. So in terms of giving our champions a championship point to take away with them after today's topic, what would you say uh, was a championship point for our listeners? So I think I I think I have two. Okay. Um, I'll steal one from Lil Wayne. Okay. So wrap it up with regards to our sexual talk. Awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Wrap it up, guys. (laughs) And get your testing done. You are sexually active. Um, And then two for our coronavirus talks. I think, you know, we can't say it enough. Wash your hands. And if you're not so worried about yourself, which a lot of people on Instagram and our age aren't, 
please, 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 please think about other people in the community, um, even if it means, you know, your elderly neighbor who may not be able to go out shopping, just small things that you can do. I don't think we need to be bulk buying like this. The mm. apocalypse is not here yet. Not, not um, yet. No, definitely yeah. not here yet. No. Just buy what you need and, and let's be courteous to the rest of the people living around us. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Do share this podcast with two people who have not heard about us before. Remember that this podcast in no way replaces advice from your own doctor or physician. Do subscribe and follow us on social media. Leave us a review on iTunes so that others can access the amazing content. And do join the club at asliceofhealth.club and drop us some suggestions or questions that you might have. Don't forget to be a health champion wherever you go by separating health fact from health fiction.